Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. there everyone thanks for tuning in to our second episode and first interview for the non-servium podcast i'm your host joel williamson and today i will be speaking with a sharp guy by the name of jason lee bias jason is a fellow at the center for a stateless society a phd student in philosophy and writes on various topics such as prison abolition war and radical liberalism jason welcome to the show Thank you. Glad to be here. I think you and I might have similar upbringings. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background and maybe how you got into your current uh, political worldview? Yeah. So not sure really where to start on that. I guess uh, basically everyone in my extended family just about are very conservative, uh, by and large evangelical uh Protestant Christians. Um, so I grew up in Oklahoma. There's a lot of people who fit that description who are not in my family as well. Um, I guess, um, in addition to that, I might, I might add, uh, so my parents, especially my dad have always been really involved in kind of, uh, local politics. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say that beyond just being involved in politics, uh, my dad has an interest in um, kind of politically related things, uh, so uh, aspects of like history and things like that that might be related to that. So I think from an early age, uh, that influenced me in that I was interested in kind of politically relevant topics um, really early because that was what my parents, especially my dad, were interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, um, like most people, I initially had their kind of general views. Um, I would say that, uh, my dad's views are, um, basically on the relatively better end of the paleoconservative type, uh, categorization, mm-hmm. um, somewhere, um, somewhere in like Rand Paul territory, maybe. Um, okay, well, so I not as was, bad as my upbringing then. Uh, what was you say? I said not as bad as my upbringing then. I I, I mean, wow. I, oh, well, I don't know enough about your upbringing <laughs> to answer that. So uh, George Bush I, I think I had a good upbringing. Rand Paul. More George Bush than Rand Paul. Okay, well, yeah, that was definitely not the case. Although I think um, to my discredit, um, there was like a year and a half where I was much more George Bush than my father uh, in like ninth grade. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there as well. But um, I think 
without the exception of that year, I think the influence on me at least uh, would be that kind of a, in its own way, a kind of a kind of skepticism towards uh, government, uh, skepticism towards uh, the use of government for certain kinds of social ends. Um, and the, uh, as for the kind of the, the evangelical, the evangelical aspect, um, so obviously the content of the morality is going to be a bit different from what I would accept now. But I think that from an early age, I think, and I, I think that my parents are very sincere on that. And so, or I, I, I'm positive they're very sincere on that. And so that kind of gave me a early uh, emphasis on the importance of morality, which I think is good, uh, despite a lot of obvious differences with uh, what the content of the morality might be. I think that that uh, might be an influence of why I'm interested in moral philosophy now, is that I've always thought that morality is a really important topic. Other than religion influencing in some way uh, your moral views, would you say that it played a role at all in sort of informing your political views? Um, do you mean with like a at, at the time or like a, at the time? Uh, so I, I'll just like briefly talk about yeah about what happened with me. Like I, I always yeah, kind ahead. of figured that I could develop coherent political opinions or any opinion at all once I sort of figured out what was going on religiously with me, you know, what sort of, I see. yeah, yeah. So like once I basically talked myself out of Christianity, got into like Eastern philosophy uh-huh. and then into Taoism and stuff, it kind of gave me the political tools necessary to, to dive I into see. things like libertarianism. Yeah, I guess. So I should also note that I, I don't think, I think I know a lot more about uh, theology now than I did ever at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think, um, I think that's one reason that that might be less the case with me though. There are aspects of it. So I definitely, it was a lot easier for me. I mean, I still do, but obviously in very different way, but very easy for me to accept the idea of like natural rights, except of course at the time would have thought of them as like kind of God given rights. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, so I, I, I guess that's – and I guess just kind of an hostility to like moral relativism. So and that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Um, but I don't think that it was that it was hugely influential in a really direct way other okay. than that. So, so how did you get to the point of, of finally embracing a type of market anarchism? I know you like the, yeah. the, the title radical liberalism. But uh, yeah. were, were there any people in particular who played an instrumental role in getting you there? Oh, yeah, plenty of people. So um, both people kind of that I was reading and people that I knew personally. So uh, one person who I think you guys have interviewed in a different context, uh, Grayson English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so around the time I met him, I would say that I was uh, a – culturally more lefty um kind of minarchist uh, mm-hmm. libertarian um and he was uh like i actually I, so i can't remember if he was an anarcho-communist when i first met him 
or if he had already become more of a democratic socialist. Um, but for the the first little chunk that I met him, I, I remember him being a democratic socialist mostly. And we kind of argued with each other a lot. Um, I'm sure both of us would say now that we did not provide the best arguments for our respective sides. Okay. But uh, a result of that was that – so. So this is kind of interesting psychologically to me is that uh, I uh, I was looking into a lot of like left libertarian stuff partly because I was interested in uh, Roderick Long because uh, he was one of the few people I'd seen who so at the time at the time much more so than now uh, Ayn Rand was a big influence on me mm-hmm. and he was one of the few people I had seen who uh, would would for example take Rand seriously. But not uh, be an objectivist, let alone like a very like dogmatic, orthodox objectivist. Um, and so I was already interested in Roderick for that. And then at the same time, I was getting much more uh, interested in the kind of cultural lefty issues that I was talking about. At the time, I was not so sure about what you might see as like kind of the economic parts of left libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was interesting, and I kind of thought about it. And in like an analogous and kind of an analogical way from the cultural issues, um, but since I was talking to Grayson so much um, about our kind of disputes, this is kind of a, a, a I don't know if I don't know if this is a if this is a good faith way of doing things, but I was certainly like recommending him left libertarian stuff that I didn't really sign on to myself. <laughs> I thought that it might be. Uh, it might be uh, convincing to him, right? Right. But at the same time, when I, I was doing that, I was also reading it myself, right? And I kind of, I kind of uh, found my way into it myself through the stuff that I was sending Grayson. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there's also the the aspect of me thinking about it kind of analogically from kind of the like social issues side of left libertarianism. Um, so I guess that's where I got into left libertarianism, and then I was briefly. Like a, I would say, like an actually like fully blown, like a left libertarian, like in the C4S sense, um, but not an anarchist for a very brief time. I'm not really sure how long that would be. Um, I and so something like kind of like Chris Gabara, maybe, but um, but then I. I was so so, but given that everyone at C4SS, for example, was an anarchist, um, that made me uh, look kind of more into the anarchism stuff again. I had kind of circled around anarcho-capitalism for a long time, so like I had been kind of like a paleo-libertarian at one time, although not with some of the what I would say is like the worst aspects of that. Um, and then I had been uh, kind of a uh, like the more culturally lib- culturally lefty minarchist in a lot of ways, but still interested in like the kinds of arguments that I would see from people who happen to be anarcho-capitalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I was – I consider myself like a free market anti-capitalist, but not yet an anarchist. That aspect actually made it easier for me to accept the anarchism just because it was kind of the – Kind of the uh, what's I'm looking for, like the the emphasis on like diseconomies of scale, for example. Okay, um, made it more plausible to me that you would not end up with uh, 
collusion from a bunch of private uh, security agencies that would just become a new state, for example. Uh, so especially influential on me on this is a uh, short uh, uh, article that I think was originally a blog post and then expanded into the version it is now in Markets Not Capitalism uh, called Let the Free Market Eat the Rich by Jeremy Whalen. Read it, yes. Uh, which emphasizes the ways in which um, kind of like market mechanisms and specifically, and I think this is really crucial, um, not not uh, socializing the finance of uh, certain kinds of protection mm-hmm. has a as a kind of wealth dispersing effect that uh, the 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 night watchman state is itself regressive basically sure uh, and so that was a really major major push for me specifically because it uh, convinced me that you wouldn't end up with kind of uh, collusion bringing about an even worse state. Uh, and I mean, I had also been kind of tentatively convinced of kind of the moral case for anarchism because of stuff like the Roy Childs letter to Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, but I guess that would be the, the big push was, was something like that. Okay. So nowadays you'd, you're, you are comfortable identifying as a radical liberal. What the yes. hell is radical liberalism? Yeah. So I think radical liberalism is – I think there's a lot of people who do not have my views who I would say are radical liberal. And so I think uh, when I first became a left libertarian, I was I was also uh, – I don't think I actually – I don't think I ever was very like – I had always like a negative association with the word liberal but for very different reasons – uh, it's, time, it seems right? like most people do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So obviously, like when I was much more conservative growing up, those all those sorts of reasons, um, and then just kind of more generically libertarian, just kind of using liberal to mean progressive, right? Um, and then uh, like the general like kind of like vague progressive social democrat sphere uh, that the word gets used for. And then when I was a uh, much more radical libertarian, when I was a left libertarian and an anarchist, I kind of slipped into the use of liberal both in that kind of progressive uh, social democrat sense and then also the kind of like reformist moderate sense of the word liberal, right? Mm-hmm. And then also because uh, of my lingering hostility uh, although obviously with different content and the morality over time, the, my lingering hostility to any kind of like moral relativism, uh, there are still assumptions about the kind of the emphasis on the neutral moral neutrality in liberalism that turned me off. And so these were things that I saw as bad things that I I use liberalism to refer to the bad thing, right? But right. like most people do, then, I mean, whether whether or not yeah, you're communist, yeah. anarchist, conservative, yes. it doesn't matter. Exactly. It's liberal. Yes. A liberal is someone who's obnoxious. Yes. And my yes. fear, my fear with radical liberalism is it's like a, a more obnoxious version of something that a lot of people already don't like. <laughs> right. Yeah. So your mileage may vary, but uh, so the uh, long story short on that is that after. Um, Kind of a lot of the political wins that started brewing in around 2015, uh, not just uh, Trump, the Trump phenomenon, but him included certainly. uh, Also, a lot of uh, 
libertarians who both libertarians who uh, defected all the way into like the far right uh, and then also kind of left libertarians who uh, dropped the libertarian part um, and either became like some sort of social anarchist at best or uh, some kind of and not just social anarchist but the kind of like very like decidedly like not anarchist without adjectives like more communist than anarchist type of social anarchist right. specifically or worse than that uh into actually like marxism or the more authoritarian kinds yeah of communism and so this started to really worry me and um i realized that the kind of the so I, 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 I had seen people specifically like Roderick Long um, and uh, Don Lavoy, who's a big influence on me, although unfortunately he did not write nearly as much as he could have since he died kind of young, who would sometimes refer to libertarianism as a radical liberalism. And I saw that as kind of a – at the time as kind of like a trivial thing, like, OK, yeah, so like classical liberalism, you think like Locke uh, – Montesquieu, a bunch of other figures like that. Uh, then the more radical version of that is libertarianism. So radical liberalism, okay, whatever, right? Yeah. But at the time, I was thinking of that as a lot of the kind of the more uh, what people might think of generally is like kind of formal political positions of like rights, uh, markets, things like that. Um, but at that time, I was starting to, as in the, again, like 2015 onward, starting to realize. Uh, there's something a lot more substantive that's important about liberalism that I think gets lost um, – that I think at least certainly got lost in a lot of the, the expressions of libertarianism in the second half of the 20th century and into now um, is that there is an importance of the, the emphasis on openness, on the emphasis uh, of um, kind of mutuality and a and – a, respect of the – that seeing the importance of, of of knowing that the social world is not zero-sum, that there is – that if uh, people are acting rightly, that there's a natural harmony of interest, that there's no – that there's no brute conflict in uh, human life. But of course, um, there's – there is a reason that liberalism has all of those – associations to people of various kinds of radical or not liberal uh, bents. And it really is for a lot of people um, either a kind of just like moderate milk toastness or um, it is – it really is associated with the kind of the progressive social democrat side of things. Mm -hmm. um, the reason for that I think is because liberalism um, for various reasons in the 20th century kind of got uh, fractured into being the sort of thing that moderates other commitments. Um, specifically, I think it's it became something that moderated a lot of uh, kind of social democratic or uh, progressive commitments. There's a reason that the progressive today are not nearly as bad as the progressives of the early 20th century. That we don't that they're not typically. Um, as full-throated on the uh, social engineering side of things to the point of, for example, eugenics, um, is because they really did digest a good deal of liberalism. But the problems with, with those people 
now are, is not the liberalism. It, the problem is uh, that it's tethered to things like progressivism and social democracy. Uh, but if the liberalism is kind of unchained of that and it's kind of allowed to be its own uh, motivating principle, then I think you have a libertarianism that is not just libertarian but also has a kind of a positive social vision, which is this kind of harmony um, and this emphasis on the positive sum of social of social life. Um, and also the radical part um, is important because – so liberalism in general I think is about this kind of like positive sum, uh, natural harmony of interests. But um, part of why liberalism in various shades looks silly to people is because it ignores a lot of the very real um, aspects of like domination and conflict that is in social life. Um, and that's why you obviously often see a liberalism and radicalism kind of expresses antonyms. The radicalism is seeing the deep conflicts in life, the deep or the ba basic uh, kinds of domination that are structuring our world. And then liberalism is papering over that is the way I think a lot of people see it. And for a lot of people, a lot of times that's true. But the radical liberal perspective that I'm seeing is saying, yeah, so naturally speaking in the sense of if everyone were – and so that I'm also building in here kind of a complicated like Aristotelian view of ethics that I'm not going to get into. But um, that if everyone is, is uh, acting rightly, then there's positive sum relationships. So there's a natural harmony of – uh, ends insofar as people are really pursuing what is best for them. However, in the world around us, that's not the case. There are all sorts of disharmony. There is all sorts of disharmony. There is all sorts of conflict and domination baked into the world that structures our experience in a very radical, deep way. Mm -hmm. But that's because of deviations from from liberalism. It's because of aggression and domination and oppression, things um, that um, liberalism militates against when properly understood and when is not turning a blind eye to these things. So I think that libertarianism um, – I think when I, when I talk about radical liberalism, really what I'm talking about is libertarianism broadly that understands – the positive social vision that it's looking for. It's not just uh, that we are being robbed, for example. Mm -hmm. It's we are being robbed and that is not the natural order of things. The natural order of things is uh, this kind of harmony and that's a really important thing to keep in mind. How do you respond to the criticism of uh, maybe not radical liberalism but definitely classical liberalism that it necessarily becomes imperialistic? That is to say that if, if, you, if you know the truth of property relations through a priori knowledge or you can understand um, what liberty is, if, if you know it in an absolute sense, then you have a duty to um, – inflict isn't the right word, but to make sure that the world experiences it. And so you get things like the United States of America mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. So, um, so I think certainly liberalism uh, has been uh, connected 
historically certain kinds of imperialism, right? Um, but I and so so there's a there's a good book on on that touches on some of these topics that I keep meaning to read um, by Jacob Levy, who I think would not like to see himself put in any kind of radical camp, but that he draws out what I think is a good distinction between uh, a kind of liberalism that function that focuses on uh, kind of uh, the uh, problems of like of the, the the kind of liberalism that's focused on pluralism on a bunch of different kinds of communities versus the kind of liberalism that's focused on freeing individuals from repressive communities um, and there's problems for both of these um, and the imperial the the connections to imperialism colonialism that's certainly part of the kind that sees itself as freeing people from uh, repressive communities and he thinks that you can't ultimately resolve that tension but I think um, I'm a lot more optimistic on this and I would say um, that's doubling down on the radical aspect of liberalism it reminds us that these kinds of imperial ambitions go against a lot of uh, basic kind of liberal common sense, right? That it's you're not uh, – you're still focusing on uh, kind of reshaping the world in a certain way through brute force. Right, which, which um, you could argue is a is a break from from what liberalism actually is saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and especially when you get into kind of the not just the moral aspects of liberalism, kind of the positive political economy of liberalism, then you're going to have all sorts of ways in which, even if in the abstract, right, um, that something might be justified. So, so for example, let's say that. Um, that the United so let's say for example that um, the United States was able to just go into for example um, Iraq and depose Saddam Hussein and actually help uh, create like an actual liberal democracy that is sustainable right. So I don't think that we would be wronging Saddam, and, and this could be done without um, without any casualties to anyone other than the people directly upholding the Saddam Hussein regime. So I don't think that the Saddam Hussein regime has a right to control the people in Iraq. So I don't think that if you got rid of all of the all of the practical problems, all of the collateral damage, so on and so forth, I don't know if there'd be anything morally wrong with that. But of course, that's not, that's all, that's virtually impossible. The point of being laughable, right? Right. Um, not only because of the war-related issues that there is going to be collateral damage. You are going to be um, harming people who are not uh, who are not the oppressors. You're also going to be harming the people you're nominally trying to help. But also that these that for institutions to really get off the ground, institutions to really stick. They're going to have to come from below. They can't be imposed from the top. That's a major um, general liberal um, – general 
lesson of liberal political economy, I think one group of people who are very good at this um, on this are the people who are in the the kind of the Austrian wing of the uh, Mercatus Center crowd. So Pete Leeson has a paper. I do not remember the title of it. I will try and remember it to you and get back to you so you could put up a link to it or something. Mm-hmm. But um, basically saying that cases where um, – where foreign governments try to come in and, for example, um, clean up the, uh, the property right systems of uh, developing areas, that they tend to make a mess of things because there's typically already uh, robust nor- robust property norms that just don't make sense to the uh, foreign uh, Western, typically, um, people trying to clean up those property arrangements. And that, that tends to end up in actual, what is really just a kind of theft. Um, and that the ex- respecting the institutional diversity uh, of those kinds of norms should lead us to want the reforms there to be more from within. So I, I don't remember what the original question was here specifically. So I think we might have gone a little bit far afield. Can you remind me again? My original question was how, how do you respond to the to the critique that liberalism is necessarily imperialistic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I don't, I I don't say, think there was a question really in between, quick, just very in between quickly that, then, though. Very quickly, then, one thing I might say. Um, so I might have rambled a little bit there and gone a little bit far from, from the specific question. But really quickly, I, I might say um, – so there's, there's one sense of this question which I'm sympathetic to it, but I think that it's more an issue of – uh, a liberalism that is worth its that ensuring that it's liberalism worth its name and not just kind of a cover for something else, uh, which is liberalism has to um, on the normative side it has to uh, be about uh, respecting people's rights, not about uh, enshrining one's own culture that you might associate with rights. Um, and then on the positive side, the kind of political economy side. It has to know that institutions are formed from the ground up; that they are uh, have to be rooted in uh, the community itself. Um, and then, I'm and then on the the other version of the question, which I might be less sympathetic to the question itself, is I think. Um, so I don't think, for example, that the idea of respecting certain people's rights in a certain way is imperialistic. And I think that might – there are people in certain sectors um, of the left that I think are a little bit too uh, defensive of certain kinds of uh, traditional norms that are that are just straight up bad. Um, but um, – and then this is, again, my ongoing hostility to moral relativism. But – even in those cases, I, I think it's important, even if, for example, it, we, you would be in principle morally justified um, in stamping out this or that uh, this or that norm because of the way in which it abuses people's rights. That does not necessarily mean that that's the right course of action because there might be a lot of spillover effects. It might uh, cause a lot of kind of uh, backlash, things like that. 
And those are things that liberalism has to keep in mind. Sure. And again, again, the kind of liberalism that I'm thinking of is ultimately going to be anarchistic. And so you're going to necessarily it's not so you you're not going to be saying all of them need to submit to uh, the su- supreme uh, sovereign authority who will who will ensure our rights. Rather, um, this is a further reason to uh, for each person who is under uh, this or that kind of illiberal authority to resist the authority that they are under. Right. Um, earlier, you kind of hinted that you might not want to get into it too much, but I mean, you are a PhD student in philosophy. You mentioned Aristotelianism. Yeah. Is it? My question is: Is it possible to be a radical liberal? without being a moralist? Yeah, so I don't, so so there's a couple different answers to that question. One friendly, one probably less un, less friendly. So the friendlier answer is yes. Um, so I think, for example, um, all sorts of people who I would, who I would ca- classify in this kind of broadly radical liberal perspective. So for example, um, Benjamin Tucker, um, in uh, the vast majority of his writings is certainly everything I've found where he really is talking about ethics. Um, he accepted an interpretation of kind of like the amoralistic egoist uh, sternerism that ends up being, I at least my interpretation, very uh, kind of contractarian where it's not really morally realist in any deep sense, right? It's not, mm-hmm. um, independent of these kind of contra- of these kind of human arrangements. Um, but still for practical reasons ends up adopting, um, an ethos very similar to the one I've laid out here. The less friendly answer, um, uh, is still yes, practically speaking, but I'm, very skeptical that anyone really uh, taken uh, seriously, and this is a, this would be a part of why I would be a moral realist to begin with, is that I'm skeptical that anyone can really be a moral anti-realist when it, it comes down to it. And so that's not really as much about the radical liberalism as it is about people in ge- people in general. Well, let's get into uh, that. Let's get into the to the, go ahead. the morality of it. Doesn't doesn't more realism require a um, a commitment to a moral universalism? Like, yeah, I would, so well, actually, technically no, but the kind that I would want would yes. Isn't the burden of proof on you ultimately? And isn't I mean, couldn't couldn't uh, universal morality be hmm. destroyed essentially with one example to the contrary? So what what do you mean by will be what would you mean by an example? So like let's say the um, you know taking like an Aristotelian approach which turns into something like let's say like the non-aggression principle or something. Mm-hmm. Like all I, all I would need to do is think of one exception to that rule where Okay, I see. And and then immediately by defini- definitionally it's not universal. Uh-huh. Yeah, so so I, I, that I don't think would be not universal that would just be not absolute right so it would still be it's not like so it's not like it's true for me 
that the non-aggression principle holds, but it's not true for you or for these other people. It's rather saying that this is an exception to the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle is not absolute in some sense, right? Uh, and so that I, I don't think that moral realism. So maybe maybe moral realism might be committed to a kind of absolutism once we understand all the nitty gritty of what the moral principles really are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the so there's no reason I think to assume that we already understand the basic uh, that anyone already has the fundamental. Um, kind of er principles of morality, um, even if, uh, or not even, not even if, but especially moral realism is true in the same way that we don't understand the, the most f- basic fundamental, um, facts of nearly anything else. We don't understand the most, we're not assuming that we already know kind of the, the one grand theory of, of any kind of physical science, right? Already, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reality out there, and we and the fact that there is a reality out there that is that is not just what we've decided gives us reason to assume we don't fully understand it yet. So maybe in if we had like the full theory, the full like grand unified theory of ethics, like the true one, then then that we might have uh, reasons for absolutism. But knowing that um, our understanding of morality is not automatically going to line up perfectly with uh, moral reality, um, actual moral reality. There's no reason to think that we we already know what the absolute principles are. So our kind of best guesses, um, those need not be absolute. And my, my own view on this is that that implies that there's something more basic there that we haven't fully grasped. But that our best understanding so far, um, that our best understanding so far is getting us in the direction of. Now, on you're saying something about burden of proof. Um, so I don't know if this is the direction you were taking it, but one thing that a lot of people will will I think that I do I, that I do think a lot of people um, think is well, there's a certain sense in which if you're claiming that um, there is this moral fact, for example, then you're claiming something positive, right? And then uh, the the person who denies it is claiming something negative. You don't have to prove a negative, right? And so therefore the burden of proof is on the moral realist to establish morality from the ground up, right? I don't think that's true. So for example, I think that an Aristotelian uh, framework, which does give a lot of a lot of thoughts on kind of what what grounds moral facts. I think that's probably the best theory, but I don't think it's um, I don't think it's like uh, if I became convinced that those that overarching theory was was false, I wouldn't immediately cease to be a moral realist because I think the right default position is not actually uh, moral anti-realism just because it's. Uh, can be phrased in kind of a negative way. Rather, I think the right uh, default position, and I think this will probably be maybe ironically counterintuitive to a lot of people, is kind of a general moral realist intuitionism Mm -hmm. uh, where you say – so morality – so moral realism is true and just kind of 
going off of your pre-existing beliefs and then you have to be argued out of those beliefs to change them. Now, why is that the case? Um, I think it's the case for the same reason that, that something similar is the case for anything. So I don't think – so for example, um, a lot of philosophers like Kant have tried to um, have really elaborate um, proofs of uh, the, exist- the external world and things like that. Um, I don't think you actually need uh, any such elaborate – ground up kind of proof of those sorts of things to believe in kind of common sense facts like the external world or um, the fact that today is not the first day in cosmic history, right? Um, I think the fact that 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 just unambiguously, it seems as though that is the case, is sufficient justification until you have a reason to believe otherwise. Because uh, that's the way that we come to believe anything. Yeah, that's that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, go like ahead. It, Sorry. It, it seems it normally comes down to it seems as if. And that's usually yes. the language that I speak in, sort of like a, yes. a radical agnosticism, if you will. And mm-hmm. if if things like that, I mean, are agnostic, then they're not knowable. If and uh-huh. if in in other words, if we're if we're basing like sort of fundamental uh, primary concerns uh, solely on intuitions, then it seems like a good direction to go, maybe a project worth exploring. Mm-hmm. But isn't that, isn't it, I mean, what do you make of the... Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, I, uh, so I don't think you have to establish something beyond any logical possibility of being false to say that you know it. Um, I think that it's perfectly reasonable to say, um, I know this, but I also accept the possibility that I'm, that I, what I've said, that what I'm saying is false. I accept as a logical possibility it is logically possible that, um, that for example, I am dreaming right now or something like that. But I also think I, I know the proof, right? Dream so- right now. <laughs> Would you say it, it, we, we couldn't prove for in other words, like if we want to take like go down on solipsistic route or something. So, so, I mean, I, I, yeah. the, so what's funny about this is I, I do think you can prove it that you're but I don't think that proof requires the kind of uh, n- kind of unambiguous knockdown like. There's no logical possibility of error here. Totally. Um, no, yeah. So, I mean, what, yeah. the way I usually respond to it is it, it, it seems as if I do exist and people outside of me do exist. Yeah. Therefore, it's probably yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. So so this is something uh, – so Michael Humer, um, who some people might be familiar with for his political stuff, um, but is also, uh, I think, a very good epistemologist uh, – so his position is what's called phenomenal conservatism, and basically the view is um, – I'm probably going to botch this, but basically the view is that um, that other things being equal, it is reasonable to assume that things are the way they appear to you. And that doesn't mean that uh, you can't look out for the possibility of error. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, error is impossible or anything like that, or that you should never consider um, very strange ways in which your perception of reality is flawed. And just saying, look, like until you have a reason to believe otherwise, like, and not just like, 
the logical possibility, but an actual positive reason to believe otherwise, you are justified in thinking that things are the way that they seem to you. And it seems inescapable to think this because otherwise – because I don't know how else you bl- you would come to know anything, right? I'm being – yeah, no, of, no. I'm with you. I follow you. I'm just being – I'm, I'm being pedantic on um, – with, with the definition of knowledge. Yeah. No, no, no. no. I mean this, these are debatable things obviously. Why don't we go ahead and talk about one of my favorite articles that you wrote. Okay, uh, cool. It's called Towards an Anarchy of Production. Yeah. What I like in this article is you talk about the market as an engine for social change. Yes. And let's see here. I've, I've got the zine here, actually. I think I got it from the Alliance of the Libertarian Leftist Show or something like yeah. that. One sentence that stands out to me in your criticism of the way that anarchist communists might organize is in the last paragraph of of um, of, uh, of of, of towards towards the beginning, and it says, "Given that social problems and oppressions can't just be reduced to either the state or capitalism, such an arrangement is problematic. What arrangement within anarchist communism were you talking about, and how does the market solve that problem?" Yeah, so I don't have it in front of me, and it's been a while since I've looked at that. But my assumption would be that I'm talking about um, this kind of um, the the way in which the anarchist communists um, leave a lot of things up to uh, kind of collective uh, community production and ownership, right? Um, so obviously, uh, anarchist communists are um, not going to leave everything up to um, collective ownership, community production. Um, but a lot of things that they are going to leave up to community production and distribution especially it are things of vital importance to people, things like medical resources, things like um, uh, things things like uh, housing in a certain way, right? Um uh, things like uh, the resources you need for any kind of major ma- production of anything other than just like immediate objects of your personal possessions, um, and so we've we are not in a that because we have not overcome scarcity completely because there are um, rivalrous scarce goods mm-hmm. of importance like this. You're going to have to make decisions about distribution, right? And um, those decisions about distribution are going to um, – there's going to be have to be, be uses that are declined, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're leaving everything up to uh, community decisions, it's going to be the values of the community or at least the values that people are comfortable publicly voicing in those scenarios um, that are going to be guiding – the distribution and any kind of, uh, and then and then not just those the the community values which we might think so for example, um, as much as I I like Oklahoma for example I would not want it to be the case that the only way someone could get for example uh, hormone replacement therapy is if uh, the people in Oklahoma decided that that was socially useful, right? I'm glad that people are able to um, 
to make arrangements uh, what that do not depend on uh, convincing everyone that that is a – convincing everyone first that that is a legitimate use of resources. Right, right. The overlapping of values uh, and the one-size-fits-all kind of makes things yes, a lot more complicated. Yes. And furthermore, so even if we're talking about like kind of like um, – so even if the values themselves are fine, um, in these kinds of uh, deliberative processes where you're deciding, um, or you're deciding where the distribution goes, there's still uh, scarcity. There's what'd you say? Scar- I thought you were, I thought you were going to yeah, start yeah, talking no, about yes. scarcity. Scarcity, and because there's still scarcity, uh, it's still going to be certain people's voices are going to be mm. more influential. Um, on those decisions than others. So, for example, even if it's if it's formally speaking consensus, everyone says, "Yeah, I agree." Um, there's going to be people who are more charismatic than other people yeah. who are able to uh, kind of uh, who are able to steer the the distribution in the way that they prefer, and people and someone who is on the losing end of that kind of arrangement, they might formally say, yes, I agree just because of the social pressures, right. To go along, but, uh, they still might end up on the, on a decidedly objectively speaking, like losing end of that arrangement. And that's before we even get into, um, other kinds of, impl- that's even, well, that's even <laughs> if we're just talking about char- charisma, right. right. Personal charisma and not, things like uh, implicit biases, right? So you and don't kind of you don't think that ingrained. social capitalism is a legitimate when it's on a voluntary local level. Oh no no, I think I think that uh, I was just I was being I was joking, but Oh okay, so was, <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, but, but, but yeah, so I think that these these kind of consensus arrangements and things like that and gift economic arrangements which I haven't really talked about because it's easier to talk about it in this way, but the, these are perfectly legitimate forms of social organizing, but it's important for there to be exit from those kinds of arrangements, right? That there's kind of polycentrism. Um, and I think this, I, I wouldn't have probably wouldn't have couched it this way at the time, but I think this, this feeds into what I was saying about the importance of a, li- a liberal ethos is it's important for the be institutional diversity, um, to, um, capture all the different kind of n- nooks and crannies of, uh, of human association that are needed for people to live serious, flourishing and independent lives. So I'm definitely not trying to say, um, in, in, uh, in the toward anarchy of production, the message there is not every single thing should be private, private property. Specifically, there should be no common property, uh, uh, that, there, every uh, relationship uh, should should be contractual or commercial, anything like that. Um, and I think there's all sorts of places for um, the sorts of arrangements that communist anarchists like. Where I'm diverging is in saying that everything should be like that, right? Of course. Yeah. So so I'm totally so the Ostroms are great. Um, I. But like the Ostroms, I think that an important part is polycentrism, the the difference in institutions. You have some institutions for some things and some other kinds of arrangements for other things. Um, 
so my my problem with with anarchist communists is not uh, these alternatives to market arrangements. The, the the problem is with kind of the market abolitionism, right? Right. That you're wanting to get rid of the private property. You're wanting to get rid of, um, of uh, you're wanting to get rid of market exchange. I see market exchange as kind of um, a check and a balance on those arrangements. That it provides an avenue for escape, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, actually, that in the way that the problems. With uh, commercial relationships, the problems with contractual relationships, private property, so on and so forth, that commons arrangements and uh, mutual aid, um, gift economies, things like that, gift economic arrangements, uh, arrangements at least, that those provide avenues of escape from uh, the bad, the um, the excesses of, or at least the uh, the things that market arrangements cannot do. I think it's important to have both, and that's what I'm trying to draw out in there. Is that there is a that there is an there are principled anarchist reasons for wanting to ensure um, that market arrangements continue to exist as long as there's scarcity. Sure. Not that not that we should only have market right. arrangements. Right. Just that we need to have them. Under actually existing capitalism, yeah, property is defended by the state. Someone objecting to a type of market anarchism might respond by saying, how is it possible to have property without the state? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm, I've always been a little bit puzzled by this objection. So I'm not sure if I'm, so to be perfectly honest, because the objection has never struck me as that strong, Mm -hmm. I actually suspect I might do a bad job of answering okay. it. It's just a common I, one. I'm sure you've yeah, heard yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, but I, I, but I, but the reason for that is I feel like the people who do the best job of answering objections generally are the people who've really believed the force of them before or really struggled with it because then they can really see why someone is having that problem in the first place and then uh, see why their reason is for understanding that reason but rejecting it. But – to give Steel you kind of my flippant answer is to say um, I don't see why property, at least in any sense that I am that I think is important, is something that requires the state any more than any other kind of uh, rights protection requires the state, which is not. Um, this really strikes me as a kind of a Hobbesian view almost. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you have to have a state uh, to defend – uh, your rights of bodily autonomy, right? Right. I think that um, there are all sorts of um, ways in which people can defend themselves, social norms that make it less likely for people to um, hurt one another. And then beyond that, kinds of uh, common like uh, protection associations. That's another example, for example, on uh, things that um, there's a role for non-market arrangements is if people voluntarily but not commercially get into uh, some sort of arrangement to defend one another's rights. That's fine. But then also like private security. So we might talk about that as well, but I think that's perfectly legitimate for defending people's bodily autonomy. Seems like it would also be perfectly legitimate and personal as it, insofar as it's something you can defend, you can defend people's bodily autonomy with it. I'm not sure why you can't also defend private property 
uh, without the state. Um, that those two things seem to go together to me. Um, now you might say, okay, well, what about the kind of large swaths of property where Ted Turner owns like half of Montana or something like that, right? Um, I think that might be what people have in mind when they say can't private property, doesn't private property depend on the state? And there I might say, yeah, that probably depends on a state in some ways because it seems – and this goes back to uh, the Jeremy Whalen piece I mentioned. And also Anna Morgenstern has a piece. I think it's called Anarcho-Capitalism is Impossible. Yeah. And I think the quotation marks – I don't care where the quotation marks are, but basically her point is that um, anarcho-capitalist institutions – are not going to uh, the sorts of institutions that anarcho-capitalists want, at least, are not going to uh, render anything that the critics of capitalism um, typically have in mind as the core features of capitalism, because um, in order to defend gigantic um, land ownership like that, you're going to have to have um, you're not you're either going to have to be just just hemorrhaging money in, in defending that property or um, you're just going to have to make do with much more uh, um, kind of scaled back property ownership. And that's fine by me um, that um, a lot of like the kind of uh, um, bigger um, property arrangements uh, that that might not be sustainable but also I don't see that as the thing that I'm looking for when, I, when I'm looking for private property. I'm not looking for owning half of Montana. I'm looking for owning a house, owning a hotel, owning a business, something like that. I'm not looking for um, the gigantic property arrangements that you can find condemnations of even in uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, who is by f- definitely not someone I would put on the free market anti-capitalist side of things, but even he sees, um, for example, um, that um, large, gigantic land ownership um, depends on state privilege, not on uh, not on uh, just ordinary uh, ordinary market processes. And so again, so like. To the extent that that it really is an objection to market anarchism, I'm not sure I really understand the objection, so I might not be the best person to answer it. But I hope that gives some thought on on where I'm coming from. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of of free market anti capitalism, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a wage system is and the ways in which capitalism yeah. shifts the bargaining power towards capital and away from labor. Yeah. So so. Like in the last question, I'm going to have to preface this and say that I might not be the best person to answer these, this sort of question for two reasons. One, um, I I think those have been areas where I have not just I just haven't done the research as much as some other people. Um, also, I think I was a lot more focused on those. I'm not not that I'm not interested in these things anymore, but I was a lot more focused on them just in terms of what I was reading and arguing and things like that a few years ago than now. But um, just to give you my general thoughts here. So I'm going to dis- – I think that there's a kind of a, a classic distinction that even uh, anarcho-communists used to make um, 
and some still do when they're being careful um, that you could find an Alexander Berkman, for example, between uh, wage labor and the wage system. So the, the difference between a wage labor and a wage system is – so wage labor is just you're working for a wage, whereas the wage system is where it's not just that, that an individual case or a bunch of cases of people happening to work in a wage labor job, but rather that, they're, that the, that's not a real robust choice in some sense. So it's not uh, you voluntary, we might say. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, that large, some sizable, uh, distinguishable chunk of the population is under the choice of either work for, for in a wage labor arrangement or, uh, suffer some very crippling form of poverty, right? They, some kind of that it, the extreme ends starvation, right? That's normally, I would say what people from the anarchist left think of when we talk about markets. Yeah. And so, so wage system, I think is a worry. I I don't, I don't think there's anything. So there might be certain dangers with wage labor simpliciter, right? But there's dangers with just about any kind of social interaction, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with wage labor. I think the wage system, that's a legitimate worry. Um, Now, the wage system, I think um, it's worth noting that a lot of the um, that a lot of the kinds of labor activity that you saw at the beginning of the 20th century, um, that labor law was that labor law as we know it came about to bring about. Uh, uh, I don't remember the exact terms. This is going to kill me, but the, uh, some kind of, I think it was industrial peace. Mm-hmm. The, the idea was to, to cease the kind of big, uh, kind of like strikes, the kinds of radical labor activity that you saw that was really like, um, causing, um, problems for certain kinds of capitalists. Um, that that's the reason that a lot of labor regulations came onto the scene and that those labor regulations, once they came about, those uh, influenced the structuring of unions as we know them today and their large bureaucratic morass. Um, and I think that if you had a actually a free market free of the regulations that are that are preventing more kind of radical um, labor activism, um, then that's going to be a real kind of check and balance on the authority of, of, uh, of, uh, management and the authority of, uh, capitalist owners. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that also, if you have the kinds of commons arrangements that, uh, anarcho communists, for example, are right to want to champion though, again, uh, I think not as full throatedly as they do, but their right to champion them in some sense that if you have that kind of thing, like a non-state social safety net, that you can create a robust set of checks both internal to uh, to working relationships in the forms of serious unions 
and outside of those relationships in the sense of mutual aid networks that make it the case that you're not really facing the choice of um, work for this job or you're just shit out of luck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's um, – yeah. And then I mean an additional aspect of this is um, – and then this is this is going to seem like a cop out answer, but um, I think it's it's I think it's a real part of it. But I but I'm positive that the people who are going to have this worry are going to see this as a cop out answer. But I really do think it's relevant. Is that increasing economic growth makes it the case that um, that uh, the kinds of um, labor arrangements you're going to have are going to be less dire generally that that the prospects of losing this particular job are going to matter a lot less. But I think I don't but I think that that's that can't be the full answer. I think that there do have to be these kind of internal and external checks and balances um, that I was talking about. And the, an elimination of the regulations that like any other kind of state involvement are going to be to the benefit the relative benefit um, of the already powerful um, in in trapping people in a very particular kind of uh, labor arrangement um, and eliminating the barriers to entry into the market for other alternative forms of organization mm-hmm. um, or people being able to go into business for themselves. So that's that's probably the biggest thing being held back by just regulatory burdens. Right. Um, and then, uh, um, then furthermore, not just going into business for yourself per se, but also kinds of uh, worker cooperative arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a large web of serious alternatives at people's disposal. Basically, the option is uh, have enough alternatives at your disposal so that um, when you say, well, if you don't like your job, you can quit. So that sounds – like a that sounds perverse that is perverse in the current arrangement right it's a rationalization under capitalism yes but if you could have an arrangement where that really was the case mm-hmm. if where it really was the case where it was right. just robustly voluntary where you really could um just just quit in the same way that you can just that if you uh don't like um that if you that if that if you don't like uh, something at one restaurant, you could just go to a different restaurant where it's really just that easy. Yeah. Um, then, then I don't. Then I think we've moved away from a wage system, and you just have a lot of scattered cases of wage labor. Right. And I think um, they're going to have to have that that the the critiques of wage system do not apply to wage labor simpliciter. Of course. Right. Right. Now, again, like I said, a huge caveat on that. that This is not something that I I have spent a lot of time on in the last few years. So I am not the person to go to for the definitive market anarchist answer on these things. (laughs) So some people might be wincing at some things that I not realize might be wince worthy that I've said. But uh, and I leave it up to them to correct me. No, that was that was definitely sufficient. It reminded me a lot of what Roderick T. Long has to say in his article "Corporations versus the Market," and yes, pointing, out, a- pointing out the way uh, directly and indirectly uh, capitalists privilege 
are, are, are beneficiaries of certain privileges that systematically stamp out competition and make yes. the conditions for labor um, way worse than they would be in yes. a sort of perfect competition and pluralistic yes. type of arrangements. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, I'm, I want to uh, change change subjects here a little bit. A friend of mine said that you experiment with ideas like some people experiment with drugs. How do you respond to this accusation? Yeah, so that's I'm, that's almost certainly our mutual friend Cooper Williams. <laughs> um, and so he said that, and then before that, um, like a few years ago, Gr- the Grayson, who I mentioned earlier, you've interviewed before, and another friend of ours would say that I was their most psychedelic friend and I didn't understand what that meant. And I was kind of annoyed by it. Um, and I thought this was like just some kind of like weird joke about me being straight edge or something like that. <laughs> um, but, and then they, when they explain it, they explain it in something like what I think you're saying that Cooper said, which is just that I, I, I don't know if this is the description I would give myself on that. I don't know if I would put it in those terms that either of them used. But I guess I'm really interested in seeing the kind of internal logic of uh, other ideas. So ideas, uh, not just political ideas, uh, but also like social views, uh, social worldviews, so moral systems, uh, even some kinds of – other other kinds of belief systems and just seeing internally like trying to put myself in the shoes of that person mm-hmm. and really understand what it is like to believe that and to um and i and i i benefit um both in that i think that it helps me to understand my own view more seeing it kind of from this external perspective or seeing how it might look from this external perspective and also maybe picking up on some of the um, kinds of true things that other that these otherwise views that I think are actually false might actually have. And then also I guess I have like just kind of almost like an aesthetic experience of um, of really just kind of grasping kind of the subjective state of what it is like to look at the world through a certain type of lens. Um, so I'll often find myself usually like four in the morning about, uh, just on some really just bizarre, obscure, um, website, some, some kind, some, some sort of crank group who leave some really far out there thing, just trying to like, trying to like understand like what, (laughs) where they're coming from. Yeah. So, so I guess that that's probably what what Cooper meant by that. So, what are some of the strange ideas that you've explored? I mean, a lot of things. Um, various kinds of like Marxism, um, various kinds of of very s- strongly, uh, decidedly uh, communist social anarchism. Um, various kinds of kind of what you might call like intellectual conservatism. And so that by that, I mean, not like kind of conservatism in the kind of general, like popular, like Republican party sense, but like, 
traditionalist type views, um, the um, some very extreme religious movements. So, for example, for a while, I was really fascinated with. Um, so this this might be, I so so. I want to be very clear here again that that I'm not. These are not things that I am remotely interested in taking on board or considering as something to take on board. But I was really interested in the way that. Um, so one thing that I'm, that I'm really interested. In, so let me say this generally before I get this specific example. Something I find really interesting is seeing how a lot, lot of ideas and a certain belief system that seem like they're, they, they're just disconnected, just kind of things that people happen to believe in conjunction with other things and seeing how there's kind of actually like an internal cons- consistency to it. Like they believe this because they believe that, that mm-hmm. uh, this other thing, not just that they're unrelated, but so certain kinds of like uh, Christian reconstructionism, for example, I became really fascinated with that for a while. And that's a really good example of what I just said, because uh, um, a lot of them, almost all of them are Calvinists, meaning that they believe that everything is, uh, well, not just that they're Calvinists, but they're very strong kind of Calvinists. The old school Calvinists. Everything is, uh, yeah, predetermined by mm-hmm. God. Everything rests on the sovereignty of God. And they're also really big often into presuppositional apologetics, meaning that, um, you, um, that you don't. Uh, that you all the, that, that you think that all knowledge ultimately is going to rest on Christianity and, and that um, you argue from Christianity uh, rather than to Christianity um, is mm-hmm. a very particular kind of form of apologetics. Um, and then they're also typically um, they want uh, their the thing that people know about them, uh, which is that they're, their uh, political system, preferred political system, is going to uh, involve giving the church um, and families would organize in a religious way a lot of uh, political powers to to enact uh, biblical Old Testament laws. Um, And that's the scary part of them, obviously. And well, what the scariest part about them, obviously. And then also a lot of them are just divine command theorists about ethics. Mm So these seem like they're all just like really disconnected views, but then uh, you look into them and really all of them are tied back to the same central notion of just this utter dependence of everything on God. All of that is that politics completely depends on God. Morality completely depends on God. Logic completely depends on God. What happens in the universe completely depends on God. Mm-hmm. But so, But those sorts of things – so just using Christian Reconstructionism as an example of when I'm interested in really like just bizarre views is is seeing the internal consistency of it and seeing how ideas go when they're taken to their logical conclusions. And sometimes sometimes that's going to be um, useful in other ways. I'm not sure that I, that I, that I've gained that kind of usefulness from the Christian reconstructivism stuff, but sometimes it's going to be useful in the sense of seeing it. So sometimes a really, this might leak into the hate reading aspect. So is that sometimes seeing like the kind of repugnant, so, so particularly repugnant belief systems that when you find the really like core motivating 
the feature. You can, especially if you can find something as core and motivating as the cursory constructionism and the sovereignty of God stuff. Which I think that's an extreme example um, of how much everything depends on that and how much everything's interconnected through that. But when you can find something like that in a belief system that you have good reason to think is just truly repugnant, then you've also kind of uh, sussed out. Um, you've kind of uh, you've kind of found you've kind of discovered a principle that you really want to avoid, right? Or that you think that you realize how destructive this idea is, or at least how destructive this idea can be interpreted in a certain way. So, for example, um, like a lot of people. Um, and then this relates also to uh, what I was saying earlier. Like a lot of people um, in a post-2015 world that I become a lot more concerned uh, with far-right uh, fascist groups than I have been in the past. And one thing that um, the alt-right has that's different from a lot of kind of earlier um, – at least – in the last several decades, white nationalist groups in America is that they try to present themselves as an intellectual movement, that they have like actual ideas. They're not just, um, just spewing hate. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or just kind of just reaction, reactive impulses of people they don't like. Um, and to the extent that they do try to, uh, kind of actually put on ideas on the table, um, I found that like just spending way too much time, like just kind of, uh, uh, listening and reading and trying to understand what they actually believe. I could relate to that. Yeah. 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 That, that, um, drew out to me, um, certain things. And one of them is, so when you, when you find someone like Richard Spencer, um, or a lot of the the other sorts of like big name alt right people, when someone asks them, okay, so why is race the thing that's the that the why is that the uh, motivating the identity for you? Why is it not uh, nationality in like a political sense, or why is it not? Um, your pre-existing some other political tribe. Why is it not religion? Why is it not as a lot of other things? Um, they often will kind of scramble and not really have an answer, but in their most transparent moments, they will, will confess to you that there's something arbitrary about it. And often they'll even say, so often a lot of over, I mean, not just often, but overwhelmingly, they're going to be like race realists, like believers in a really strong kind of biological right. notion of race. But when you find them talking on outlets that are not really for public consumption, so when you're in the middle of a long interview on some racist podcast for racist by racist, right? Right. Um, then they will say things like, uh, like um, that. So, like Richard Spencer, for, for example, will just say that even if it turned out that like race was not um, as biologically important of a uh, of a phenomenon as they think it is, uh, then 
that would not really affect his views or if or he will say even that he thinks that race is not just about biology um, and that it is the kind of like socially constructed yeah. that there is that there is a major socially constructed element to it uh, based on history and just the way the historical contingencies. But for him, it seems and a lot of other alt-right people, it seems as though. It's more that this that this is just it's so pure in its tribalism in a way that these other a lot of these other things aren't. So, for example, that um, that you have uh, um, that you have uh, um, religion. Well, that's not going to be purely tribalistic because the religion is going to have its own kind of moral principles, its own. Um, kind of metaphysical system, its own views about salvation, so on and so forth. Political systems obviously have all sorts of um, principles that don't reduce to tribal arrangements. Nationalities, it's going to have um, even some, not principles per se, but some kind of uh, contingencies that are not just the tribe itself. Whereas race, more so than anything else, really is just a classification system right mm -hmm. and um it, it just it is exactly because of its arbitrariness that it's so that it's what that it's the, the arbitrariness is what um people like richard spencer gravitate to is that it just is this kind of collective that is just is it's like just brute in a certain sense that it's not that it's you're not going to have moral principles that are going to make you that are going to make you not that you're going to make you restrain your tribalism. It's just that, and really at the end of the day, more fundamental for um, at least that segment of the alt right than the than even the racism is this view of the world where things just are constantly in conflict. That the world is not positive sum; it is zero sum. That, that necessarily there will be some people who win and some pe people who lose, some people who are dominated, some people who dominate. Um, that it's – that you are not uh, – that there is no harmony of interest even in an ideal world, right? And that um, – and that, that these kind of like collective battles are what give meaning uh, to our existence. Mm -hmm. And that's really the fundamental thing, even more than the racism. The racism is just because it's, it's such a salient identifying feature. Um, so, um, uh, if you mean for one, for, I mean, just as an analogy here, just to emphasize what I'm saying about race being a salient identifying feature for just classifying people, that the reason that, uh, prison gangs are so racialized, or at least a major part of the reason that prison gangs are so are racialized is because it's something that now that once we have like a racial system and the culture generally, like you look at someone, you can immediately identify them as a certain race, right? Generally speaking. And it's, it's a, it is, it is a, a classification system that is just kind of brute in its classification system ness. And so if you're just looking for just kind of dividing people up into collectives and class, classifying them that way, that's what that's the most salient thing you're going to get.
And that's why, um, that's what drives, um, the Richard Spencer sector, at least of the far right to the racism in general is this kind of, it's, it's just the most salient, um, identity group for that purpose. So, so a good analogy here might be is that, um, that Spencer will say a lot of positive things about Marxism because Marxism is also this kind of conflict-based ideology where you have these different social classes, right? Um, where uh, there's the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, um, things like that. And he sees the left generally as this kind of conflict-based thing. So in his view, of course, like, Cultural leftism is going to just be other kinds of like of racial identitarianism, the oppressed, whatever. That's his obvious way of viewing it. And but his but his reason for favoring the the kind of far right racist view is because he will say that Marxists or the left or in general, right, can never win. And what he means by that is because there's still this kind of uh moral uh, kind of like quasi quasi moral or moral uh attachment to the people who are being oppressed it's still not to the group itself right it's not just a hundred percent undiluted this is the group this is our team there's nothing more to it than that we just want to win and that's what that's what i that this is one of many major takeaways that I've had from really trying to delve into, um, that, the, that kind of way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that kind of just this, this, this holding up that mirror image and just saying that, and this is why I would say, and so, so, so what I'm about to say sounds like something that someone might say just to make the, make their worldview sound good or something like that, or just kind of like a, just a meaningless generality. But I really think that racism of that kind of like ideological racism is even further from the spirit of libertarianism than communism. And I think really delving into it, like really drew that out for me um, because it drew out what is the identifying feature? What is it? the identifying feature of that kind of worldview, it's this tribalistic conflict, amoral worldview. Whereas, um, the liberal worldview, as I'm saying it is this kind of moral universalism, uh, this kind of, uh, very like, um, positive sum centric thing where conflict is not what drives the world. The absence of con the cooperation in, cooperation, collaboration, that that is what drives the world, mutual aid, uh, mutually beneficial exchanges, that those are real, that that's, that that's what drives the world, not conflict. And that there are genuine, um, interests beyond just identity conflicts that drive the world. And I think if you really get into not just uh, the things of like this or that Nazi gets an interview with CNN or whatever they say there. But what they say when they're talking to their own crowd is that they will clearly identify 
liberalism as the bigger enemy to them than communism even. Yeah. That communism is just kind of – this is the scary thing to people and this is what motivates people. Um, the fear of communism might motivate them to be more tribalistic. So that's what they talk about more. But liberalism is the bigger problem for them. So Spencer, for example, is extremely anti-Christian. And the reason he's extremely anti-Christian is because of uh, Christianity's kind of uh, detribalizing effect. That it's kind of uh, everyone is uh, is is equally like a, a, a part of the image of God, things like that. There's kind of proto-liberalism. And the proto-liberal anti-conflict elements of Christianity are precisely why he's so anti-Christian. Well, they, and, all, re- they all read the same thinkers, yeah. you know. They're all into Carl Schmitt, you know, yeah. and the, the rest of those thinkers. Very quickly, I if someone just wants to understand that kind of fascist mindset, that I, the, at least the element that I was focusing on just now, I would recommend reading The Concept of the Political by Carl Schmitt. Um, because this is exactly what he's saying. Right. It says that the fundamentally what politics is about is winning. It's about cru- it's about having the your friend, friend and enemy distinction. Yes, and crushing the enemy. Yeah, and that's that all the moral stuff that that's just window dressing. That's just those are ju- those are ju- basically just jerseys. Something that I also noticed is that the people who fall into fascism specifically both historically so there's a lot of there's a lot of differences between historical fascism and the kind of modern wave but this is a commonality that i've noticed at least with like old fascism and like the the modern alt-right is the people who are most susceptible to it are people who thought that they were that life was just going to be super easy for them that they expected um, some kind of uh, of easiness to life that just did not come through, or that for one reason or another they've witnessed a relative uh, change in social position, and it might even be that they're still doing all right in an absolute sense. Just the the change in relative position. So a lot of the people who fell in with fascism or people who um, found – so so for example, a lot of the like really crazy fascist writers like Julius Evola, for example, are people who were part of an old aristocracy who after World War I got uprooted. And they're still living pretty well in an absolute sense. But the fact that they were not – in the relative position of dominance that they thought they were going to be, um, pushes them into this kind of this kind of uh, reactionary mindset where they realize themselves as a tribe mm-hmm. that they feel has been displaced and wanting to take things back. And similarly, I think so there, I think there's an element of this even at the kind of the much lighter end of the kind of like nationalistic populism with like a Trump phenomenon. But certainly this is the case with this kinds of people who who've become alt-right. These are often people who have college degrees that did not really end up doing a lot for them, um, that they're, and they are very angry about that. These are often people who, 
uh, feel as though uh, that um, they connect their their personal um, the kind of personal uh, hardship of their college degree not making life as easy for them as they thought with kind of changes in social views about race and gender. And there's something that I think is that, that sows the seeds of fascism there of this just kind of sense of thinking that you had some, something going for you that they just did not turn out. And really quickly, I will say this is another thing that I see with the really particularly illiberal uh, left um, that often the people who fall into uh, Leninism, for example, have similar uh, situations. It's just that um, for either because um, they uh, – the, for social reasons that going into the far right is just not an option for them. Um, and so that's just kind of the alternative. But – and again, I don't like to psychologize um, belief systems, but I think that this really does seem to be a prerequisite for people falling in with um, especially radically illiberal worldviews is this kind of demoralization in both senses of that word. Interesting. All right. So I'm, I'm going to list some names and some ideas, and I want you to briefly, maybe in one minute or less, give me your thoughts on either that person or that idea. Okay. And uh, feel free to pass if you'd like to. Are you down? Sure thing. Benjamin Tucker. Uh, I think Benjamin Tucker is a really fascinating thinker. His uh, sternerism does not seem like real sternerism to me, but something kind of an interesting like anarchistic uh, contractarianism. I think it would be really interesting for someone to write something really kind of fleshing out, trying to figure out what the logical structure of that is. I think also um, uh, he's some someone who, I think he was wrong about a lot of things, but the ways in which he's wrong are even interesting. I think a lot of the ways in which that are distinctive of him compared to a lot of modern libertarians, I think um, if nothing else, the direction he's trying to go with, even the things that he's wrong about are better um, and I wish he had not been as combative with a lot of the people he engaged with, but, it, but, uh, he, he's certainly a fun writer when he is being combative. Sure. Quakerism. Yeah. So Quakerism is really fascinating to me for a lot of reasons. One of which is, um, so the development of Quakerism early on, it was around the same time as, the when things like the levelers were getting off the ground, and you notice that um, the levelers, who I think are are really influential to me, especially on kind of recovering this kind of radical liberal ethos, you notice that a lot of the levelers are people who they started out and they were like Calvinists, and then uh, they became Quakers. And I that's I think the first thing that made me interested in Quakers is like, wow, that's interesting. I wonder if there's some relationship there. Quakerism does seem to me to be, I think, a particularly amenable religion, uh, religious framework for uh, kind of radical liberal thought. Uh, its emphasis on um, individualism, a lot of them would not like me to put it that way, but individualism, uh, especially the elevation of the individual uh understanding of right and wrong with the inner light 
uh, not just under, I guess not understanding, but the sense of, of, of what is the right thing to do, which they see as the direct communication of the Holy spirit. And I think cause of, I have reasons cause of the intuitionism that we talked about earlier of thinking that this is, um, very good, whether or not it's, it's true as in the theological terms, I think there's something there. And I think it's, there's something to the fact that Quakers were a lot earlier than everyone else on, uh, being ab- being strong abolitionists of slavery and other sorts of social ills, and also really quickly because I know that it is going over a minute, but um, <laughs> their their method of decision making I think is a really fascinating. It's not consensus, even though it looks like consensus, but it's kind of like a morally charged semi consensus of everyone believing that they're that they're trying to collectively uh div- understand the will the the inner light the the direct working of the holy spirit but i think it provides a really interesting model for um decision making in kind of small groups trump i, w- I would like to say i don't think about him <laughs> and uh to quote rourke on that but uh unfortunately i do think about him um, and, um, I guess I don't really have a lot to say. I, um, other than that, it's just startling to me, even independent of his politics, how good an exemplar he is of moral vice, um, that he really seems to be someone who is not, uh, Try, like ever trying to work out a mutually beneficial exchange. Somebody who's always trying, looking at things as uh, interpersonal conflict and trying to win those conflicts. And I think it's, uh, I, I just, seeing how badly of a life that it would be to live as Donald Trump, I think, <laughs> no matter what material benefits he gets, is itself. I think a really powerful moral argument. So, yeah. yeah. Nationalism. So I think we kind of touched on, on a little bit this when we were talking about, um, the other, the, the all right. But, yeah. uh, I think, uh, nationalism is a really destructive force. So I think, so I guess one thing we didn't talk about is other kinds of things that call themselves nationalism. Uh, um, so things that are not like uh, th- things that are like oppressed groups, kind of nationalism, or like or, or territories under the control of someone else, kind of nationalism. So you might think like um, like Welsh nationalism or something like that, as opposed to British nationalism. Um, so I think that those kinds of nationalisms are kind of a fusion of two things, which is one a good thing. Which which is kind of just kind of this this tendency towards decentralism, uh, secession, uh, kind of opposition to uh, colonialism or uh, in ongoing imperial rule. That's all good, but I think that it often gets wedded to this kind of identitarian uh, collectivism that I think is gravely problematic. And even if it's not that problematic in a particular instantiation, 
investigation at the moment. I think that it's the sort of thing that is the seeds of something that could become very problematic when it really got off the ground. So once once you have have the new territory, let's say that you you win your your nationalist struggle, then um, that identity group is the that is the power group in this new nation. I think that's the seeds of a problem. Wittgenstein. Um, one of the things that's interesting about him to me is that he'll often write in such a way – I'm thinking of his later work, which is really all I care about, honestly. Um, but he'll often write in such a way where uh, he kind of gives an argument that gives you a fork where you could uh, take this argument in one direction or you could take it in another direction. But he doesn't actually say which direction he's taking it. And so that's led to a lot of radically different interpretations of Wittgenstein. Um, so some people think that he's a highly skeptical philosopher. I, I think that is very much not the case. I think he was much more of an anti-skeptical philosopher than probably he himself even realized. All right, Jason. Well, what are your plans moving forward? You're taking the academic route. How might this uh, relate to your efforts to further a free society? Yeah. So part of the reason that I'm that I'm interested in academia, um, hoping that that goes well and everything, is um, not <laughs> – here's the here's my bad answer um, – is that uh, it's not just because I think it will like socially advance anything. I'm not that optimistic about my impact as a single person. Uh, I really like exploring ideas. I really like developing my own ideas, uh, trying – Trying to see um, see how ideas line up with one another. That's what I do in my free time. We talked about doing it at four in the morning um, with really strange ones, and the idea of the, just the the possibility of doing that for a career is is really appealing to me. But I do think that it's important for any kind of social movement to have kind of like critical reflection on its own ideas. Um, and I think also that for a, a social movement to be sustainable, it has to have like a lot of conversation going internally about the ideas and how those ideas relate to one another for people to kind of not get bored of it and to stay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that even beyond like actually deciding what's the right thing to do or what's the good way moving forward, I think that's 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 an important thing. Um, just that's developing ideas itself, developing conversation going. Mm -hmm. Um, also I think obviously like you have to have the critical reflection in order to find new ways in which, um, old ideas were, did not account for new situations or old ideas were not fully, um, consistent with something. And I think academia, because that's the whole job of it. Um, it gives certain people a place uh, to um, spend their full time on that if they're doing that correctly. Also, I will say I think that there's a lot about academia structurally that is bad, and I, part of that I mean morally bad. I think college as we know it um, college, the, the, the role of college in society as we college education, as we know it in society might be an unjust, a major injustice, because I think 
for a lot of people that they don't really need a college degree to do what they want to do in the sense of, uh, of they need the, the information they get there, but they need it socially because it has become expected of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think forcing, um, people to, even if, even if college was free, for example, even just forcing people to take this time out of their lives when they could be doing something else, um, and submitting them to this kind of authoritarian structure for that period of their lives, I think is unjust to people. Um, but I still want to be a college professor, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that there will be new outlets for quasi academic careers yeah. that, um, I guess my main problem with a lot of it now is that the people, a lot of that it ends up being kind of crankery, but I hope that there is a that at some point there develops um, a space for non crankery in quasi academic uh, jobs. But I, I mean, there's also good things about academia, so I'm not just saying I hate it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, but I guess uh, that's more of an answer than you're probably looking for, but. No, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, well, um, hopefully, hopefully that that does happen, and that's uh, and, and good luck to you, Jason. Is there anything I forgot to ask you that you'd like to touch on before we end the conversation? Well, I can't think of anything really, so I'm just going to say that if any of your listeners are ever in Oklahoma or North Texas, uh, I would strongly recommend getting a burger or some ice cream and a Brahms. So I, I think that's something that people not from that part of the country uh, don't know enough about. And it's, it's highly underrated. So. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, um, I guess the last question, two parts, uh, what are some resources you recommend for people to plug into, to find out more about what you're interested in and also how can people follow you? Okay. Um, yeah, so I so right now my Twitter is locked, but that's for a very particular reason that will probably not be relevant in the next few months. And also I'm basically accepting pretty much every follow request. So um if I if the Twitter is still locked at the time that you're hearing this podcast, go ahead and uh fo- try to follow me if you can. Um, it's just Jason Lee bias, B Y A S. And then, uh, my articles, just about all of them will, would be on C4SS.org. So, uh, the center for stateless society. So that's C the number four S.org. And, um, I think that's about it. Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jason, and I look forward to this episode coming out. I do too. I hope I did not ramble more than I realized. No, you were fine. We'll talk to you soon. Sure thing. Bye. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Jason Lee Bias. I would like to thank you again for tuning in and supporting the show. 
Remember to like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube account, our Stitcher account, and our SoundCloud account. Be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. It's definitely going to be a good one. Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you soon.